0: This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to an edition of Witnesses of History, which is a lot of short and undated reports this time. There doesn't seem to be very much in history that happened in November, although we are going to start with a very short report from the Daily Telegraph dated November the 12th, 1918. After lasting nearly four years and four months, the great European war, carefully organized and provoked by the Germans, virtually came to an end yesterday by the signature of an armistice. This event was notified to the British public by the subjoined official communique issued from the Press Bureau at 10.20 yesterday morning. The Prime Minister makes the following announcement. The armistice was signed at 5 a.m. this morning and hostilities are to cease on all fronts at 11 a.m. today. And now we go back to John Eldred's report from 1583 about Babylon. And in his report, he mentions the Tower of Babel But it was in fact the Temple of Marduk, it was later discovered, which had a tower built in seven stages. So here's his report. The Euphrates at Burr is about the breadth of the Thames at Lambeth, and in some places narrower, in some broader, it runneth very swiftly, almost as fast as the river Trent. It hath diverse sorts of fish in it, but all are scaled, and some are as big as salmon, like barbel. We landed at Fallujah on the 28th of June where we made our abode for seven days for lack of camels to carry our goods to Babylon. The heat at that time of the year is such in those parts that men are loath to let their camels travel. This Fallujah is a village of some hundred houses and a place appointed for the discharging of such goods as come down the river. The inhabitants are Arabs, not finding camels here, we were constrained to unlaid our goods and hired a hundred asses to carry our English merchandise only to New Babylon over a short desert. In crossing whereof we spent 18 hours travelling by night and part of the morning to avoid the great heat. In this place which we crossed over stood the old mighty city of Babylon, many old ruins whereof are easily to be seen by daylight, which I, John Eldred, have often beheld at my good leisure, having made three voyages between the new city of Babylon and Aleppo, over this desert. Here also are yet standing the ruins of the old Tower of Babel, which, being upon a plain ground, seemeth afar off very great, but the nearer you come to it, the lesser and lesser it appears. Sundry times have gone thither to see it, and found the remnants yet standing above a quarter of a mile in compass, and almost as high as the stonework of St Paul's steeple in London, but it showeth much bigger. The bricks remaining of this most ancient monument be half a yard thick and three quarters of a yard long, being dried in the sun only, and between every course of bricks there lieth a course of mats made of canes, which remain sound and not perished as though they had been laid within one year. The city of New Babylon joineth upon the aforesaid small desert, where the old city was, and the river Tigris runneth close under this wall, so that they may, if they will, open a sluice and let the water of the same run about the town. It is above two English miles in compass, and the inhabitants generally speak three languages, to wit the Persian, Arabian, and Turkish tongues. The people are of the Spaniard's complexion, and the women generally wear, in one of the gristles of their noses, a ring like a wedding ring, but somewhat greater, with a pearl and a Turkish stone set therein, and this they do, be they ever so poor. And now we have Fines Morrison's report of the Elizabethan policy in Ireland in 1602. Morrison was secretary to Sir Giles Blount, who was Elizabeth's Lord Deputy in Ireland. Now, because I've often made mention formally of our destroying the rebels' corn and using all means to famish them, let me by two or three examples show the miserable state to which the rebels were thereby brought. Sir, Cha- Sir Arthur Chichester, Sir Richard Morrison and the other commanders of the forces sent out against Brian McCart in their return homewards, saw a most horrible spectacle of three children, whereof the eldest was not above ten years old, all eating and gnawing with their teeth the entrails of their dead mother, upon whose flesh they had fed twenty days past, and having eaten all from the feet upwards to the bare bones, roasting it continually by a slow fire, were now come to the eating of her said entrails in the like sort roasted, yet not divided from the body, being as yet raw. Former mention has been made in the Lord Deputy's letters of carcasses scattered in many places, all dead of famine. And no doubt the famine was so great as the rebel soldiers, taking all the common people had to feed upon, and hardly living thereupon, so as they besides fed not only upon hawks, kites, and unsavoury birds of prey, but also on horse flesh and other things unfit for man's feeding, the common sort of the rebels were driven to unspeakable extremities, beyond the record of most histories that I ever did read in that kind, The ample relating whereof were an infinite task, yet will I not pass over it without adding some few instances? Captain Trevor and many honest gentlemen lying in the Newry can witness that some old women of those parts used to make a fire in the fields, and diverse little children driving out the cattle in the cold mornings and coming thither to warn them were by them surprised, killed, and eaten which at last was discovered by a great girl breaking from them by strength of her body and Captain Trevor sending out soldiers to know the truth, they found the children's skulls and bones and apprehended the old women who were executed for the fact. The captains of Carrickfergus and the adjacent garrisons of the northern parts can witness that, upon the making of peace and receiving the rebels to mercy, it was a common practice among the common sort of them, I mean such as were not swordsmen, to thrust long needles into the horses of our English troops, and they dying thereupon to be ready to tear out one another's throats for a share of them. And no spectacle was more frequent in the ditches of the towns, and especially in wasted countries, than to see multitudes of these poor people dead, with their mouths all coloured green by eating nettles, docks, and all things they could rend up above the ground." (laughs) Well, after that horrendous story from our past, let's have something lighter. Thomas Gray in November 1739. In fact, he wrote this in Turin in November 1739, but he was reporting on something that happened before, crossing the Alps. I am this night arrived here and have just sat down to rest me after eight days tiresome journey. For the three firsts, we had the same road we part- before passed through to go to Geneva, and the fourth we turned out of it, and for that day and the next travelled rather among than upon the Alps, the way commonly running through a deep valley by the side of the river Arc, which works itself a passage with great difficulty and a mighty noise among vast quantities of rocks that have rolled down from the mountain tops. The winter was so far advanced as in great measure to spoil the beauty of the prospect. However, there was still somewhat fine remaining amidst the savageness and horror of the place. The sixth day we began to go up several of these mountains and as we were passing one met with an odd accident enough. Horace Walpole, who was with me, had a little fat black spaniel that he was very fond of which is sometimes used to set down and let it run by the chase side. We were at that time in a very rough road, not two yards broad at most. On one side was a great wood of pines and on the other a vast precipice. It was noonday and the sun shone bright when all of a sudden from the woodside, which was as steep upwards as the other part was downwards, out rushed a great wolf, came close to the heads of the horses, seized the dog by the throat and rushed up the hill again with him in his mouth. This was done in less than a quarter of a minute. We all saw it, and yet the servants had not time to draw their pistols or do anything to save the dog. If the dog had not been there, and the creature had thought fit to lay hold of one of the horses, Chase and we and all must inevitably have tumbled above fifty fathoms perpendicular down the precipice. The seventh day we came to Landborg, the last town in Savoy. It lies at the foot of the famous Mount Sinus, which is so situated as to allow no room for any way but over the very top of it. Here the chaise was forced to be pulled to pieces, and the baggage and that to be carried by mules. We ourselves were wrapped up in our furs and seated upon a sort of matted chair without legs, which is carried upon poles in the manner of a bier, and so began to ascend by the help of eight men. It was six miles to the top, where a plain opens itself about as many more in breadth, covered perpetually with a very deep snow, and in the midst of that a great lake of unfathomable depth from whence a river takes its rise and tumbles over monstrous rocks quite down the other side of the mountain. The descent is six miles more, but infinitely more steep than the going up, and here the men perfectly fly down with you stepping from stone to stone with incredible swiftness in places where none but they could go three paces without falling. The immensity of the precipices, the roaring of the river and torrents that ran into it, the huge crags covered with ice and snow and the clouds below you and about you are objects it is impossible to conceive without seeing them. And though we had heard many strange descriptions of the scene, none of them at all came up to it. We were but five hours in performing the whole, from which you may judge of the rapidity of the men's motion. We are now got into Piedmont, and stopped a little while at La Faurier, a small village about three quarters of the way down, but still among the clouds, where we began to hear a new language spoken around about us. At last, we got quite down, went through the Pas de Sous, a narrow road among the Alps, defended by two fortresses, and lay at Bossolet, Next evening, through a fine avenue of nine miles in length, as straight as a line, we arrived at Turin. We move into the 19th century and seeing the Elgin Marbles for the first time in 1808, a report by B. R. Hayden. The the marbles, ancient Greek sculptures, mainly from the Acropolis of Athens, were shipped to England between 1802 and 1812 amid furious public controversy by Thomas Bruce, the seventh Lord Elgin. The collection was not open to the public until 1816. This, then, is Hayden's report of his viewing in 1808. To Park Lane, then, we went, and, after passing through the hall and thence into an open yard, entered the damp, dirty penthouse, where lay the marbles ranged within sight and reach. The first thing I fixed my eyes on was the wrist of a figure in one of the female groups, in which were visible, though in feminine form, the radius and ulna. I was astonished, for I had never seen them hinted at in any female wrist in the antique. I darted my eye to the elbow and saw the outer condyle visibly affecting the shape as in nature. I saw that the arm was in repose and the soft parts in relaxation. That combination of nature and idea which I had felt was so much wanting for high art was here displayed to midday conviction. My heart beat. If I had seen nothing else, I had beheld sufficient to keep me to nature for the rest of my life. But when I turned to see the Theseus and saw that Every form was altered by action or repose. When I saw that the two sides of his back varied, one side stretched from the shoulder blade being pulled forward and the other side compressed from the shoulder blade being pushed close to the spine as he rested on his elbow with the belly flat because the bowels fell into the pelvis as he sat, and when, turning to the Illissus, I saw the belly protruded from the figure lying on its side, and again when in the figure of the fighting Metope I saw the muscles shown under the one armpit in that instantaneous action of darting out and left out in the other armpits because not wanted, when I saw, in fact, the most heroic style of art combined with all the essential detail of actual life, the thing was done at once and forever. We conclude with a report of the Farringdon Watercress Market of 1851 by Henry Mayhew. I recently moved out to Buckinghamshire and I'm near the remains of the old Metropolitan railway line and one of the ways the Met made a lot of its money was by taking watercress from the Chess Valley into the market at Farringdon. But the Met didn't even open until 1863 and this report comes before that from 1851. The shops in the market are shut, the gaslights over the iron gates burn brightly, and every now and then you hear the half-smothered crowing of a cock, shut up in some shed or bird fancier's shop. Presently, a man comes hurrying along with a can of hot coffee in each hand and his stool on his head, and when he has arranged his stand by the gates and placed his white mugs between the railings on the stone wall, he blows at his charcoal fire Making the bright sparks fly about at every puff he gives, by degrees the customers are creeping up, dressed in every style of rags. They shuffle up and down before the gates, stamping to warm their feet and rubbing their hands together till they grate like sandpaper. Some of the boys have brought large hand baskets and carry them with the handles round their necks, covering the head entirely with the wickerwork as with a hood. Others have their shallows fastened to their backs with a strap and one little girl, with the bottom of her gown tattered into a fringe like a blacksmith's apron, stands shivering in a large pair of worn-out vestrous boots, holding in her blue hands a bent and rusty tea tray. A few poor creatures have made friends with the coffee man and are allowed to warm their fingers at the fire under the cans, and as the heat strikes into them, they grow sleepy and yawn. The market, by the time we reach it, has just begun, One dealer has taken his seat and sits motionless with cold for it wants but a month to Christmas with his hands thrust deep into the pockets of his grey driving coat. Before him is an opened hamper with a candle fixed in the centre of the bright green cresses and as it shines through the wicker sides of the basket it casts curious patterns on the ground as a nightshade does. Two or three customers with their shallows slung over their backs and their hands poked into the bosom of their gowns, are bending over the hamper, the light from which tinges their swarthy features, and they rattle their hatements and speak coaxingly to the dealer to hurry him in their bargains. Just as the clocks are striking five, a stout saleswoman enters the gates and instantly a country-looking fellow in a wagoner's cap and smock-frock arranges the baskets he has brought up to London. The other ladies are soon at their posts, well wrapped up in warm cloaks over their thick shawls and sit with their hands under their aprons talking to the loungers whom they call by their names. Now the business commences. The customers come in by twos and threes and walk about looking at the cresses and listening to the prices asked. Every hamper is surrounded by a black crowd bending over till their heads nearly meet their foreheads and cheeks lighted up by the candle in the centre. The saleswomen's voices are heard above the noise of the mob, sharply answering all objections that may be made to the quality of the goods. They're rather spotty mum, says an Irishman, as he examines one of the leaves. No more spots than a newborn babe, Dennis, answers the lady tartly, and then turns to a newcomer. At one basket, a street seller in an old green cloak has spread out a rusty shawl to receive her bunches, and by her stands her daughter in a thin cotton dress, patched like a quilt. Ah, Mrs Doland, cried the saleswoman in a gracious tone. Can you keep yourself warm? It bites the fingers like biling water it do. At another basket, an old man with long grey hair streaming over a kind of policeman's cape is bitterly complaining of the way he's been treated by another saleswoman. He bought a lot of her the other morning, and by daylight they were quite white, for he only made thruppance on his best day. Well, Joe returns the lady, you should come to know them, as knows you, and Allah's treats you well. As the morning twilight came on, the paved court was crowded with purchasers. The sheds and shops at the end of the market grew every moment more distinct, and a railway van laden with carrots came rumbling into the yard. The pigeons too began to fly onto the sheds or walk about the paving stones, and the gasman came round with his ladder to turn out the lamps. Then everyone was pushing about, the children crying as their naked feet were trodden upon, and the women hurrying off with their baskets of shawls filled with cresses and the bunch of rushes in their hands. In one corner of the market, busily tying up their bunches were three or four girls seated on the stones, with their legs curled up under them, and the ground near them was green with the leaves they had thrown away. A saleswoman, seeing me looking at the group, said to me, Ah, you should come here of a summer's morning, and then you'd see em, sitting tying up young and old, upwards of a hundred poor things, as thick as crows in a ploughed field. As it grew late and the crowd had thinned, none but the very poorest of the crest were left. Many of these had come without money. Others had the hatens tied up carefully in their shawl ends as though they dreaded the loss. A sickly-looking boy of about five, whose head just reached above the hampers, now crept forward, treading with his blue naked feet over the cold stones as a cat does over wet ground. At his elbows and knees his skin showed in gashes through the rents in his clothes, and he looked so frozen that the buxom saleswoman called to him, asking if his mother had gone home. The boy knew her well, for without answering her question, he went up to her and, as he stood shivering on one foot, said, Give us a few odd cresses, Jinny," and in a few minutes was running off with a green bundle under his arm. As you walk home, although the apprentice is knocking at the master's door, the little watercress girls are crying their goods in every street. Some of them are gathered around the pumps, washing their leaves and piling up the bunches in their baskets that are tattered and worn as their own clothing. In some of the shallows, the holes at the bottom have been laced up or darned together with rope and string, or twigs and split lathes have been fastened across, while others are lined with oilcloth or old pieces of sheet tin. Even by the time the Crest Market is over, it is yet so early that the maids are beating the mats in the road, and mechanics with their tall baskets slung over their shoulders are still hurrying to their work. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Mattias. www.soundimage.org.